0: Hey, what is up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope life is treating you good. We are into February. We are uh, deep into February, actually, closing in on March now. And I hope your year is going well. If if this is your first time here, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you hanging out with us. This is a podcast where we interview speakers who are professionals who've been at it for a while, speakers that are getting started and struggling, trying to figure out what to do next. And occasionally, I'll do some teaching and training just on a specific subject or topic, or we sometimes will answer listener Q&A. So ultimately, wherever you're at, In your speaking business, we want to help you find and book speaking engagements. We want to help you to deliver better presentations. And ultimately, we want to help you to make an impact, make an income with your message. That's what we're all about here. And so I really do appreciate you hanging out with us. Hey, we're going to be digging into a great interview today. But before we get there, let me remind you, if you haven't already, we'd love for you to stop by and check out freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. Every single week, we are doing live trainings, teaching you all about how to find and book paid speaking engagements engagements so we walk through actually the speaker success roadmap this is a roadmap that we teach within the speaker lab that walks you through specifically how to again find and book speaking engagements how to build your business and how to grow even beyond the stage so we dig into that again over at freespeakerworkshop.com so absolutely we would love for you to check that out All right. So today we're going to be talking with my buddy, John Spence. John has been speaking for 23 years now. He's been in this for a while. This is really a wide ranging conversation. John has again, not only spoke for many, many years, he's a multiple best-selling author. He's traveled all over the world. So this is, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this. But today we talk about customization of his talks. We talk about why that's made such a big difference in his business. I think you'll be amazed and impressed with how much time he spends working on any given presentation. We talk also about how he has built his entire business on referrals and repeat clients and how you can do the same. We talk about how he got started by strategically speaking at the right places for free that had decision makers. We also talk about how he still gets nervous and, and what he does to deal with that. And then finally, we talk about why he doesn't do free speeches for anyone anymore, even for charities, and what he does instead. I thought this was a really, really creative and clever idea. So we talk about that today as well. All right, my friends, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with my buddy, John Spence. Enjoy. up my friends grant baldwin here welcome back to the speaker lab podcast hey today i'm joined by my buddy john spence john has been speaking for uh, a while now has figured a few things out and is going to share all of his wisdom and uh, tricks of the trade with us today so uh, john how are you today brother I'm doing great, Grant. How are you today, man? We, I'm doing quite well. Uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand. It's a little unusual to just catch you at home <laughs> given how much you are gone and how much travel you do and how much speaking you do. So just for like context sake, give us kind of a snapshot of how much speaking you're doing and uh, we'll kind of dig in from there.
1: For the last couple of years, I've averaged about 170 to 220 days a year on the road. Last year, I did 182 oh, and I do about 60 to 80 major presentations a year worldwide. I did uh, Poland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Latin America, all across the United States. I head for Lithuania and
0: Malaysia here in a couple of weeks. Filling up that passport. Get those stamps in there. You know, man. You've definitely got your hands full with that and and the volume of travel that you're doing. So, Kind of talk us through, like, what's the business like today in terms of if you do 60 to 80 presentations a year, are those conferences or those associations, corporations? What does that kind of look like of who you're speaking to? And then also give us kind of the overview of what is it that you typically speak about?
1: Yeah, great question. Let's see. I've never looked at it quite that way. I'd say it's probably about 20% or so major associations I've got about another 30% and I'm at 50% of major corporations, Fortune 50, and then the rest is small to medium-sized businesses, events, conferences, things like that. I speak on a whole bunch of topics, leadership, high-performance teams, culture, strategy, strategic thinking, business excellence. This is my 23rd year doing this, and also I do a lot of big keynotes. 3,000, 5,000, up to 15,000 people, Mm -hmm. but typically my clients, after I did a keynote, ask me to do a couple of breakouts or workshops as well, and a small percentage of my business, maybe 10% is actual strategic planning, consulting, working in hands-on with companies trying to help them improve.
0: Cool. Okay. you said several things I want to touch on. So one of the things that you mentioned is you, you know, you rattled off six or seven different kind of big picture topics that you could speak on. And there's certainly going to be some overlap there, but one of the challenges, I think for a lot of speakers is really kind of picking, this is the lane that I want to be in. And this, this is what I speak about. Although there's these other pieces that I could speak about. So how do you find that balance between these are things that I could speak about without watering it down and becoming this Jack of all trades, master of none.
1: Well, it's fairly clear for me. I've got all of those are focused in the business arena of key things that businesses need to be successful. But every single one of my speeches is customized. I don't do anything out of the can. So I you grab from all those topics to build unique programs every single time. So I spend a lot of time on the phone with my clients saying what specifically, you know, here's the question I ask all of them. If someone walked out of the seminar or the speech after I gave it, And you stopped him in the hallway and said, what are the three biggest things you just learned? You tell me that and I will back up and build us a speech or a program to get there.
0: How? What's your process for doing that? Meaning that are you... I assume you're not working from scratch every single time knowing that there's going to be some of those stories, those anecdotes, those stats that you just know that that stuff works. And so there's always that balance for speakers of, I want to do this material because I know this works and I know the punchline and I know how to keep the audience engaged with this kind of train of thought here. But at the same time, I want to do something that is custom. So like, how are you approaching it? You finish that conversation with the client. They have three things they want to say. Are you just kind of going to the archive of here's all the different stories, points, Analogies, all of the above and just kind of putting it together from there? Or what does that process kind of look like?
1: Yeah, I've got a tremendous amount of content in the can. I mean, I've got major speeches on all those. Mm-hmm. I've got workshops on all those. I mean, this is two decades of doing this, I've collected up some stuff. I also read about 100 to 120 business books a year, and I have for about 25 years. And I spend an hour every day reading, studying on business topics, reading Fortune, Forbes, Inc., you know, Fast Company, all that stuff. So when I get that from a client, I look at the base of information I've already got on hand, slides I already have, I look at what their needs are, and I'll start to piece together parts from everything else that meets their needs. And then oftentimes, this is what makes it so cool for me is they'll ask for something I I've never really spoken on about. It's something close in business, but well, I'll give you an example. I just got one on virtual teams. I know a tremendous amount about high performance teams, team building, all that sort of stuff. Not an expert on virtual teams. So I'll read 500, 600 pages on that and boil it down to four slides or five slides to add into my normal team building.
0: So, I mean, that's just on one specific topic. So are you doing that on any given topic or at this point, are you finding that the request that people would have is pretty much the same? I would assume it's kind of an 80-20 of 80% of your speeches are on, you know, 20% of the topics that you give.
1: You nailed it. Well, let's put it this way. 80% of the content is already there. 20% 20% has to be new every time. I change my slides around. Actually, I've gone to start to not using slides at all, even my major presentations. I like that. Just pictures, just big pictures with okay. maybe one word on them. I had a chance this year to attend a big conference in New York, a sales conference. And some of the top, Tim Sanders, Gary Vaynerchuk, Simon Sinek, Seth Godin were all there. We were all presenting. And I got a chance to sit in the front row and watch them. I learned a ton and I changed my presentation style, but there's a good solid base and about every, t- I've got about 20%, 30% of customization each time I'm reading on the plane, wherever I'm going. So I'll get there and change slides or change stuff. I usually attend the meetings before or the speeches before I'll pull stuff in from all that. So that at least keeps me on my toes and keeps it interesting that I'm not presenting. And again, to your question, yeah, about, of the stuff people ask for is the same five or six topics. Right Right now it's leader of the future. What are we gonna need in leadership? Business excellence. And then I've got a huge amount of stuff on accountability and disciplined execution around strategy, things like that.
0: There's a couple of questions that come to mind. Like let's talk about the slides for a second. So you said you generally have used slides in the past, you're starting to go away from that. What has caused you to make that shift?
1: When I have a smaller group that's a little bit more intimate. Mm And especially if it's like, I've got one coming up here in a couple of weeks in Fort Lauderdale. That's a group of sales managers for a large company. And it's a very focused thing. So I'd rather just have a talk with them. We're just going to, you know, it's going to be more of a workshop Mm hands-on. I want them to clearly see that I know the information inside and out. I've lived it. I don't need slides. This is stuff I understand. I only use slides now when I'm doing something maybe in front of a thousand people or more than that. And again, it's just big, bold, super high-res photos, maybe one or two words, A, to keep the visual part of the audience engaged, but B, I use them as placeholders to remind me what to talk about. And I don't script anything. I don't write anything out. I've got a few stories I tell most often, but... I try to keep it fresh and changed up most of the time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like just the volume of reading and consumption that you're doing helps you to stay on the forefront of being a business speaker where you're not giving examples that are dated or from even five years ago, but here's something I read in Forbes this week, you know, or here's something that's affecting your industry right now, especially as a business speaker where there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of business speakers. Do you feel like that that's been a big differentiating factor for you?
1: Oh, this is a, you know, this is a super, super good piece of advice for the folks that are listening. The way I figured this out as a differentiator is I went to all my top clients after I've been doing this for about five or six years. And most of them were fortune 100. And I asked them, there's a massive amount of competition. There's thousands of people that could do this. Why specifically did you hire me? Yeah. And they told me three things, research, real life, passion equals ROI. Research. I'm the only guy they know that reads 100 books a year, and I have for 20 years. I'm constantly trying to learn and grow. Real life. I've been the owner, CEO of five companies, three of them multinational. I was the CEO of one of the Rockefeller Foundations when I was 26. And then passion. It's obvious to see that I don't do this just to make money. I do this because I really enjoy business and strategy and helping businesses improve. And because of those three things, they always get a high ROI. So if you go to my website, that's slapped right on the front of it. Because that's my major differentiator. Um, There's some really talented people in this space. And the way I differentiate it is by constantly bringing new information, new ideas. And because I work in companies too, it's not just reading. I'm in there doing strategy. I did strategic planning for three Fortune 50 companies this year.
0: I get the impression that it's like all the research that you're doing and all the customization and those differentiating factors that you're doing. Because like you said, there's speakers that we both know who are great speakers and they're like, I am not. I don't customize a word of it. This is what you get. Come in, fly in, fly out, take it or leave it. And they still do well like that. But I get the sense that all the research and the customization piece is more than just you Wanting to provide a great experience, but it's you, it sounds like it's even just like a curiosity and a fascination and and a passion of your own to help provide the best possible piece, even if that means it's more work for you.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what shows through. And it's one of the reasons that I, you know, I was listening to Bob Berg's podcast with you earlier today. He wrote, I think it was uh, Endless Referrals, was it?
0: Uh, The go giver, and then the, I don't remember the title and the referrals one, but yeah.
1: 99.9% of my business has been word of mouth for the last 15 years. I'm booking to 2018 right now. And that's based on the fact that I've got some clients I've had for 15, 16 years that bring me back year after year after year. I've got new information, new ideas, new things. I have fun customizing it because it makes it more interesting when I get to present the information. Right. But that's that value add that they're willing to pay top dollar for and say, you were so good at this, let's pick another topic for next year and another topic for the next year. And some of them give me eight months. So I start working on stuff, planning it three, four, five months out. And I said, well, okay, I got to give a speech on this. Let me grab seven or eight or 10 books on this and start weaving it into the things I'm studying.
0: I think you brought up a great point there in passing in terms of mixing it up and customizing it makes it more interesting and challenging for you as a speaker. So if you go and you give the same presentation every single time, you know that that talk is really, really dialed in, but it's possible to just go on autopilot and do a great talk, but you're bored internally, right? Right. So I think that's a great point of mixing it up, just keeps you as a speaker, keeps you sharp and keeps you on your toes. Exactly. So one of the other things that you mentioned there was Given how much customization that you're doing and how many speeches you're doing over the course of the year, how are you balancing that with time? Meaning that if you get booked for something that's nine months out and you know you're going to read five books between now and then on that, and you're going to put in a certain number of hours of research and work to prep for that one talk multiplied by 60 to 80 clients that you're working with, like how are you balancing that?
1: Well, remember, we said that 80% of it's already stuff I've studied and learned, I'm putting it together. But What I've got, my team is my wife is my basically general manager, or she's my partner. She does all negotiations, all contracting, all initial phone calls, you know, make sure that the person can afford me. They're not a tire kicker. So I don't have to deal with any of that. Then we've got an operations manager who runs my calendar, runs all correspondence, handles email for me. So here's the neat thing is I do almost nothing but content. I have no other jobs. I don't do any negotiation, sales, any of that. So that means that, and then the other thing is because I travel so much, I'm exceedingly disciplined. Well, almost all the time. I don't watch TV. I don't go to movies. I say no to a lot of things that other people waste time on. And when I'm traveling from the minute I leave the house to the minute I get back, I'm reading, studying, and working on stuff the whole time. Now, again, because I love it and it's fun and exciting, it doesn't feel like work. When I'm reading on planes or working on slides or doing stuff in the hotel room or customizing my speech, it's like a big party. (laughs) And it's like, I can't (laughs) believe people pay me to do this. So, you know, it's taken away some other things. But really, I'm at a great point in my career where I don't have to touch a single part of my business except for content.
0: The behind the scenes travel life of speakers is generally very, very boring. Like I have people all the time that ask me, oh, you're going to such and such city. You need to go see this museum or go to this. I was like, I don't do anything. I go from the airport to the hotel, back to the airport. And that's basically it. It sounds like you're, you're kind of run a, a similar pattern there. What?
1: Two things. Now I'm starting to do more of that, but you'll get a kick at us. And I bet you've heard this from a bunch of other speakers. I am highly introverted. Yes. Uh, I am too. I like to hide
0: in my hotel room.
1: (laughs) I like to eat, you know, like I don't go out to dinner or lunch with my clients unless they demand it. It's part of the contract. It's not that they're not nice people, they're very nice people, but I'd prefer to be in my room reading, working on slides, or go to the gym in the hotel or something like that. And I love helping people. I don't like being on the stage. I still get very nervous. I'm very uncomfortable when people come up and want me to sign books and things like that. But I do it because I'm dedicated to helping them. So I'm different than some speakers that love the adulation and standing ovation. I'm the reverse. As soon as I'm done, I'm like, I got to go. I got to get back to the hotel room. I got to read. I got to do something, but I got to get out of here.
0: <laughs> I, and that's weird. I, I would a thousand percent agree. I'm the exact same way. It's one of those, like, I like being with people on a stage setting, but I'm, I'm the same. I just, I want to get to my room. I want to get back to the hotel. I want to get back to the airport. Why do you think that is that so many speakers are wired like that?
1: I think to me, there's sort of a division. There's speakers who love the stage and get energy from it and their motivation and they're excited. And it's all about the interaction with the audience and getting them all pumped up or something like that. So for them, there's, it draws a lot of energy and they love being in front of people. There's a bunch of us too that are teachers and that's how I see myself. I don't see, I see myself more as a business expert and a teacher that happens to be able to speak and get on the stage. So I come at it from a different thing. I'm not excited about the crowd or anything to me, 300 and 3000 or 15,000. It's the same thing. Yeah. But I like helping people, but I don't like being the center of attention, which is hilarious considering what we do for a living.
0: (laughs) One of the other things you mentioned is that you still get nervous. And I've talked with some speakers that are like, I never get nervous. I'm the same boat, like the first 15, 30 seconds. And even backstage, I'm pretty wired up of just feeling those nerves and those butterflies. Why do you think that is? or, Or I guess even more than that, like, how do you deal with that going on before you go on stage?
1: Well, I've got some rituals. I try to eat a very healthy breakfast early a couple hours before I've got to speak. I don't eat lunch or anything if I've got to speak in the afternoon. I've figured I used to sweat profusely. I'd get so nervous. Most people see now that I wear vests. I don't wear vests as a fashion statement. I wear it to look dressy without having to wear a jacket. And since we're all speakers on this call, I've also figured out there's a couple of neat undershirts, and I can't remember what they're called right now. They have big pads under the arms.
0: I would use Uh, those. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yep. and I, you know, So I've figured out a way to, to make the some of the stuff that makes me nervous. Will I get hot? Will I sweat? Will I do this? I've taken that away. I've gotten used to it. My stomach hurt. One of the reasons I get nervous is the main one is I want to do well, not for me, but for the audience. One of the things I say in almost every time I take the stage is I get to talk to you for about an hour and I will not waste one minute of your time and I hit the ground running. So I want to make sure that people get value. Number two, because I change stuff up every time, I'm not always sure what I'm going to be presenting. <laughs> so, you know, I turn around the slide. I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't know that was in here. <laughs> okay, it looks like we're going to talk about this now. Right, right. And I think the audience sees that as not as someone who doesn't know what they're doing, but someone who, because when I go to talk about it, I, I obviously know it inside and out. But they realize that it's not some canned speech because even I'm not exactly sure what's going to be coming up on the next slide when I right. use them.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's definitely true that the audience senses that as well in terms of, are you just going through the motions and just regurgitating the talk that you gave last week? Or does this feel like this is fresh? This is something that he thought of and worked on specifically for us and in this environment. So I think that can definitely make a a big difference with the audience.
1: Oh, yeah. And I, again, you know, I think that when you do that kind of stuff, at least for me, that's what drives so many referrals and so many recommendations, so much repeat business. And it changes when you're early in your career, but I see a lot of speakers still that spend the vast majority of their time selling speeches, trying to you know, get in on the phone, making cold calls, sending out, putting out market materials. I don't do any of that. I owned an advertising firm for eight years. I've never advertised or outbound marketed any of my work. Everything is referral coming into us. So that again, because I try to deliver such good content, I work so hard on that. I think it allows me to not have to spend any time on selling because my client's sell for me.
0: I would a thousand percent agree that your best marketing is always going to be a great talk. Meaning if you're great at getting the gig, but you show up and suck, it's really hard to build a business that way. So is there anything that you do beyond just the amount of time that you spent preparing and practicing to make sure that the talk itself is solid in terms of getting referrals? So, you know, the talk is good. Is there anything strategically that you do with the clients or asking for referrals or like, what does it look like either before, during, or after to take that one speaking engagement and make sure that A, it's a repeat client that you work with for years and years to come, but also that they recommend you to others.
1: Yeah. Well, let me take you through the process real quick. My team screens everything. Now that I've been doing this a while and gotten a little bit more of a recognized name, we get a lot of tire kickers. People that call and couldn't get anywhere close to affording my fees. So we've got people referred to and things like that. But once they've screened them, we know that they're a real client. I get on the phone with them for a client interview. Usually it lasts about 30 minutes to an hour. And I ask them questions about their company, their industry, their competition, their people, what's the conference going to be about. And I ask them that famous question or what are the three top things you want your folks to learn. Then we'll verbally go through it and I'll make some recommendations and say, this sounds to me like you want this, 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 and here's what I propose. They go, great. Then immediately when I get off the phone with them, I dictate back a memo to them, outlining everything we discussed, what they said their most important points were, what's going on at the conference, what the theme is, how long I'll talk, everything to let them know, I got this for you. Mm -hmm. And then I send it to them. And if they approve that, then I go into the customization and building of it. Part of the thing that we do a little bit is I build into the clients. If I do a really fantastic job, if you get back your ratings and on a scale of one to five, I've got an average of 4.9 or higher across your entire audience, it would be awesome if you could let anyone else, you know, that you think would find value in the kind of information that I present, let them know about it. And I also am really careful about, or not careful, but I do pursue speeches to like association meetings where it's a hundred or a thousand association directors or a thousand people from an industry where every single person in the audience is also a potential customer. Right. And those ones are, I mean, the association field probably takes up 30% of my work. And it's grown and grown and growing because they tell each other. When they get a great speaker, they go right to someone else. Go, oh my God, this guy, or, you know, Grant Baldwin was here. He was fantastic. You got to get him. That's driven. And I ask them to do that. And I also stay in touch with all my clients. I send them uh, emails, information, things I'm reading. And I put at the end of almost every email, please never hesitate to send a note or call if there's ever any way I can assist you. I also tell my clients that if you need a speaker, call me first, and if I can't do it, I will be happy to find the best person I know in the world that can do that. And I've spent a lot of time recommending other high-level speakers, friends of ours, on similar topics to me, Joe Callaway, folks like that. Mm-hmm. I will send them Guy Kawasaki. And then what turns on is those folks refer back to me. And the next year when they need a speaker, I'm at the top of the list because I've helped them get such other good speakers.
0: I was going to say, so much of... It sounds like for you and your business model is less about just being a speaker and more about being a resource for these clients. So in terms of here's what I've been learning, here's what I've been reading, let me share this via email, whether you hire me or not, here's some books I would recommend, here's other speakers that I think would be good for you. So it sounds like just providing regular value to them has really kept you top of mind and made you a real valuable resource to them.
1: Yeah, yeah. The word I'd use is trusted advisor. And I want to help them in all areas of their business, even if it means work for me or not. Recommending books, recommending other experts, sending them information, constant. I do a lot of that on my blog, too. Almost all of my major clients follow my blog very carefully. I write it for the audience, too. And that's another place that I'll write about something in there about, wow, I've got this new idea, this new thought. I think it's really powerful and interesting. I'm studying it. I will get requests over the next couple of weeks for someone to say, I read that on your blog. I love the idea. Can you do that speech for our company? So I'm not plugging a speech. I'm talking about an idea that I think is really relevant or something I just learned that I think is a big idea. And I will typically sell two or three or four speeches to people to go, I think that's important too. I'd like my people to hear it.
0: You touched on earlier, whenever you are speaking, what you're doing with the actual client in terms of generating additional referrals. Is there anything that you do to generate referrals with the audience? Because that's always one of the variables of you never know who's in the audience of you go speak in an association and it turns into that amazing talk you just gave. Can you come do that for my people? Like, I don't want to try to regurgitate it, but if you can come do that for my people, is there anything that you do from stage to help kind of you know, solicit, not solicit, but just let people know that you're a speaker. Cause there's always that, like, I see you smirking there. There's always like people that are like, they just think you just did this, this one time, you know, and they didn't even make the connection that, no, no, like, this is, this is what you do. Like, this is the full-time gig. So anything that you do on stage that makes it work?
1: Well, I think I'm almost the antithesis of a lot of speakers. I think the intro sets that up. I mean, we've written a good short brief in- intro that mentions I, you know, I travel around the world doing this and helping people and delivering programs. And, you know, I've won a bunch of awards as a top speaker, top thought leaders, and that's all in the intro. It's brief. It's only maybe a minute, but I think that sets up. I refuse to do anything from the stage that looks, smells, or feels like selling myself. I do put a slide up at the end with all my contact information, but I do not sell anything back of the house ever. If my client wants to buy books, we don't push them. But if they want to buy them, well, I'll buy them and I'll sign them for everybody. If they have a library and they buy my books, I'll go sign it. But I've even had people say, well, you know, will you reduce your fee if we give you a table in the back where you can sell books? Refuse to do it because I don't want it to look like, I want it to look like, which it's the truth. I'm there to add value. I'm there to help, help, help as much as I humanly can. And I feel like if I go way above and over the top to give them great information and stuff that will really help them, they'll want to help me. And I have, oftentimes after a large speech, I'll have a line of people handing me their business card saying, please contact me. I want you to come to our company. So it's almost the opposite of a lot of other speakers.
0: Right, right. You mentioned today, the majority of the business comes from repeat and referrals. And after being in the business for 23 years, that works. What did you do early on to get business? Because referrals and repeat typically aren't happening in year one, two, three, or very minimal. So what were you doing early on just to get business?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I did for all your listeners, I struggled mightily for the first five years. I mean, for the first three years, it was hand to mouth and I was doing a lot more consulting then. And I'd literally like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage next month. Then I'd land a big client and go, okay, I'm okay for a month. My friends and I would call it the rolling precipice. Yeah. How far are you out before you don't have any income? Yeah and you know it used to be a month and then it was 4 months then when it got like 6 months I was like wow now it's <laughs> out to about 2 years so that makes me feel better yeah. wait a minute oh man i got ex- oh and so in the beginning here's where i went my rule was either i'm going to do this for practice to work on getting better as a speaker or i refuse to give a free speech or a discounted speech unless most of the audience is potential customers so, you know, all of us have to give free speeches. And remind me, I want to tell you about how I do that now. But I would make sure I was in front of the right audience. Number two, and this is a one that helped me a lot, is I went to our local college and a couple of local large businesses and said, I'd like to come in and do a one-hour class on leadership for some of your top people. And no charge. If it's bad, it was only an hour of your time. If it was good, I would like to talk to you about coming in and doing work for you, and I got a lot of business. Said, "Yeah, you want to come in during lunch and do a lunch and learn? Absolutely, no problem." That's how I landed Merrill Lynch, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Allstate, State Farm. It was on me offering to do something, but but the key was it had to be the decision makers. Maybe not the CEO, but the head of training, the head of HR, the HR department. Did that for Mayo Clinic, a lot of my top clients. But I never did that unless I knew I was going to be in front of people that could say, okay, you're great. You're on the team now. Now, let me fast forward and tell you that other quick thing. I don't do free speeches anymore, but when I find a charity or something in my community or a company I think is great, I tell them my regular fees. And then I say, but that's not what I'm going to charge you. What I'd like you to do is make a donation of a minimum of a thousand dollars to a charity I care about. And don't write the check to me, write it directly to the charity for two reasons. One is I've learned in my career that if you don't, get paid anything they don't value you. Yeah. You know, you, you show up, they say there'll be 400 people, there's four people and two of them are asleep. You know, cuz they didn't spend any money on it. So I wanted to have some skin in the game. And then number 2 that allows me to generate a pretty significant amount of money for charities I care about every year because I do a half a dozen or a dozen of those at 1,000 to 3,000, 4,000 bucks a piece it allows me to help out a bunch of cool
0: charities. Yeah. I remember you sharing that in the speaker group that we're in. And I was like, that is a smart idea. Cause it's so true. Uh, like you got the charity, the good side of it, but even just from like getting the client to even care and for it to matter to them and to put the effort in, if they've got no skin in the game, the you know, if they don't care, it makes for a horrible, horrible speaking environment. So brilliant idea there. So I'm curious that whenever you were doing some of those free luncheons with some of those initial big companies, what were you doing to even just get your foot in the door with them? Cause it's if like, it's a huge risk just for them to let you, even though it's free, if you come in and you suck and it's even if it's still free, ah, it's yeah. not a great experience. Now you're confident coming in that you're not going to suck, but they're taking on significant risks. So what are you doing to kind of overcome that?
1: I got really lucky. I think, oh, luck, you know, preparation, opportunity, luck. I went to our college that's about an hour and a half. I live in Gainesville, Florida, so I went up to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. A little bit smaller university than the University of Florida it would have been harder there. And I went to their executive development group that teaches professional development classes, not for students, but for executives or professionals in the area. And that was the first one. I said, I will do a free class for your staff. And if you like me, I'd like to become one of your instructors to teach to all these major corporations that are sending their people in. And it's a lot, much less risk for them. I got in with them and did such a good job. They decided that once every three months, they'd have a John Spence week. And I taught a half a day every day and they set it up, they marketed it, they got people in, they kept about 80% of the proceeds and paid me about 20%. That was about back then. This is 18, 20 years ago, it was $1,500 a day, so it was pretty good money. But I had people in my audience from all of the Fortune 100 or larger companies in the area that were being sent for training that the company didn't offer. And I often got managers in there that said, why are we sending all our people over here? Why don't we just hire this guy to come to our office? I will give everybody an interesting fact, though. I was really young and naive and didn't know what I was doing then, and I set up a 70-30 agreement contract that the university got 70% of the money and I got 30. And when I signed my first deal with a fortune 10 company for a quarter of a million bucks, big one, they wanted 70%. And I said, I made a mistake. i never in a million years would have believed I'd be generating 300, $400,000 a year through people I met in your classes. And they said, well, you signed a contract, you owe 70%. I said, well, then here's what I'll do. I won't teach for any of those companies. I'll turn down the contracts. So I won't do it because I refuse to spend months of my life working for somebody for a quarter of a million dollars. Right. You would check for two hundred thousand. I'm not doing it. And they said, fine, terminated. And they we made a list of all the companies I could not work for. And then the CEO of a major company called and said, we want Spence. You get him back on contract. You figure out what it takes to create a win win deal. So I gave him the, the deal that I would give any the agent, 15 percent. And for six years, they got 15% of everything I did, and it was a significant amount of
0: money to them. Work with any agents or bureaus today? I work with about nine or 10.
1: I'm not exclusive with anybody. And no one of them sent, you know, I only, out of nine or 10, I probably only get six or seven bureau yeah. speeches a year. Right. They're starting to pitch me a lot more, and I'm starting to get a few more. But one of the things with bureaus is they've got 11 other people that do what you do. Yep. So if they get pushback on my price, my price right now is between 25 and $35,000 a day. And I do a daily rate, you know, from the minute I get off the airplane to the minute I get back on the airplane, you own me. You want me to do a 45 minute keynote and pay me that. That's great. You want me to do the keynote, two breakouts, a VIP luncheon, dinner with the CEO. I'm fine for two reasons. I am there anyways, yeah. and I want to help people, but B the more people I talk to, the more chance I get for referrals. Yeah. So, you know, the, They had somebody that couldn't meet that, we just made the adjustments around that.
0: Gotcha. Let's wrap up with this. So being in this business for 23 years, um, you mentioned today you're doing events with the Seth Godens, the Guy Kawasaki's, the Simon Sineks, you know, the the Gary V's of the world. But you said, you know, year one, two, three, you're like, what the heck am I doing? Like this may not even work. Like, I don't even know if I'm good enough. So for people that are listening at any stage, whether they're year one or year 10, and they're just going like it is just a grind to make this work, and it is just a constant struggle. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up, and why shouldn't they?
1: Well, two things. is I really looked up to somebody in the industry who would helped me with my career a ton, and back then it was Tom Peters. I was a Tom Peters fanatic. And I looked at it and said, he's helped me so much. His book's helped me so much. He's helped all my friends. I want to do that. I want to do what Tom Peters says. I actually met him once and told him that. And he laughed at me. This is like 12, 15 years ago. And he goes, ha, ha, ha good luck, you know? And three years ago, they named the top 100 leadership speakers in America And it was alphabetical. And he was three names in front of me. Peters was somebody else then Spence. And I sent him a note. and He said, well, congratulations. And he sent me a copy of his book. But I got up every day saying, I want to help businesses. I can do this. And what I did is I made a list of everything that Tom Peters did to become Tom Peters. How much did he read? Who did he work for? What did he do? And I made a long list. I said, if I just get up every day and work on checking something off that list, in just 17 years, I'll be an overnight success. <laughs> and when I got feedback from companies and people that said, wow, what you taught us changed everything. We didn't have to lay people off, right? Companies more successful, that kept me going. But it was hard for the first four or five, six years. I didn't know how I'd ever make it to that level because I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think I had good enough value. I never thought I could write a book. Didn't think I, I didn't think I had anything of value. Now I'm on number seven. And it took me literally about 15 years before I realized I was good enough to have my own ideas. And I still feel like I need a lot of help, but it really took that long till I found my own voice and said, these are my ideas, my information, here's what I think. And that was a big leap forward because you go then from sort of regurgitating data and having a speech to having an opinion and to thinking things through and having a point of view that's your own and unique, which again, I think adds a lot of value to a client.
0: There's a lot of speakers that I talk to that have been in this for a long time. And it seems like a big piece of it is just the perseverance side of it, of just not giving up and just being stubborn enough to not quit, but also the side of having just a long-term perspective that year one is going to be brutal. Year two is probably going to be, it's going to be brutal for a little while, but just going I know that each time I speak and someone hears me, that may lead to something years from now that I don't, I'm not even aware of. You don't know who's in the audience, but you're continuing to plant seeds and see what comes up. And that harvest may not happen for years and years, but it, it may indeed happen.
1: Yeah, my client next week I've had for 18 years. They were one of the very first clients that hired me to do some training and speaking very early in my career, and I'm doing their national sales meeting. So yeah, it takes a lot of time. And you know, I think one of the other things, too, that people don't realize is the amount of travel and time and things that take. You know, I don't have kids. That was a professional decision because to travel 200 days a year and have a family mm-hmm. is totally unfair. My wife, who's my business partner, travels with me. She's with me 50, 60% of the time. So we get paid to travel all over the world together. And that's a great lifestyle business, but it's also 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time when we're on. And and what we do is we will work for three months straight without a day off, and then we'll take a month off and vacation. So, and which is something you can do in this industry. I'm dead in June and dead in December. I got those off completely every year. It's a pretty good deal to have all that and still get, eight or 10 weeks of vacation
0: and both of our wives share the same name so that's a win too so john thanks for the time my friend if people want to find out more about you what you're up to where can we go
1: (laughs) johnspence.com
0: i'm curious was that difficult to get because that seems like a fairly common name or was it did you have to buy it from anyone is there any story behind that
1: yeah, the internet wasn't invented when I, when I was that long <laughs> ago. <laughs> so literally, when, you know, I mean, in the early days of the internet, when I was doing this, I went up and bought everything that had anything to do with my name, my books. I mean, I bought anything that was close. Now it would be impossible to get stuff like that. And now as I'm writing new books and doing things, I'm having a hard time finding some of the URLs I need. Right. And I have had to buy them from other people.
0: Yeah, good times. All right, buddy, <laughs> appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, my honor, thanks Grant.
0: All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Spence. You can check out his stuff over at johnspence.com, J-O-H-N-S-P-E-N-C-E.com, johnspence.com. Hey, again, let me quickly remind you, be sure and register for our next live training where we are teaching you all about how to find and book paid speaking engagements, all right? So if you haven't already, you can stop by freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. Register for the upcoming training that we have, and we look forward to seeing you there. All right, my friends. That wraps up episode 121. We will catch you next time. You're awesome.